Before we start the show, a reminder that you can hear more of our political reporting on the NPR One app. That's N-P-R-O-N-E. And you can also use it to discover new podcasts like Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. It's a guide to the good stuff in popular culture, and we think you'll like it. Okay, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast for Wednesday, October 25th. Day three of our every weekday episodes right up until Election Day. And our first one with under two weeks to go. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor and correspondent. So, Ron, did you hear yesterday's episode where Sam Sanders said that he was going to dress up as you for Halloween? It's too late. The stores are entirely sold out of those costumes. (laughs) (laughs) Ron, what are you going to be for Halloween? Probably sleeping. (laughs) So real quick, on to what the candidates were doing today. Hillary Clinton was in Lake Worth, Florida. And just like Tim Kaine before her this week, she was urging Floridians to vote early. And we now know that about 10 million people have already voted early, two million of them in Florida. We can't take our foot off the gas even for a short time. Every vote counts. Just ask my friend former Vice President Al Gore. And Lake Lake Worth can make the difference. Florida can make the difference. And around the same time in Washington, D.C., the noted swing state of Washington, D.C., Donald Trump was speaking at a ribbon-cutting ceremony for a new Trump hotel, and he struck a very optimistic tone. There is nothing we cannot accomplish. The United States is great. It's great. Its people are great. There is no task or project too great. There is no dream outside of our reach. Don't ever let anyone tell you it can't be done. The future lies with the dreamers, not the cynics and the critics. Ron, you are making furrowed brows. I, I, I am dumbfounded to hear these things because it has been for the last six months more like a year really it has been a sharp criticism of Donald Trump to say any of those things to say that America is great that her people are great uh, that the future belongs to the dreamers not the cynics and the critics yeah and so much of his argument has been that the country's in a very bad place and which is why a change agent is needed that if if a change agent doesn't come in the country's going to go completely off the rails so that sounded like a remarkably uh, optimistic mystic Donald Trump today. Just it just it, seriously if I had seen these words without hearing his voice say them I would never think that they had been said by Donald Trump. I would believe they had been said by a Clinton surrogate somewhere campaigning for her. <laughs> so, he was in Washington DC, which is kind of like not a place that he needs to win a lot of votes. But he's also used the campaign. It's sort of mingled with his business interests over time. You know, he's had events at most of his campaign events or big campaign announcements have been in his own hotels and properties. We've seen Trump steaks. We've seen Trump wine at some of his press events. And this is sort of par for the course for the campaign. And Trump, he defended the decision to visit the hotel today as a way to support his kids uh, who really have taken the lead on this particular project while he was running for president. And And he did go on to campaign events later in North Carolina. But there is something odd about the way that he mingles these enterprises commercially and politically that is unusual for a politician. Now, 
Is that the only unusual thing about Donald Trump? Certainly not. Is it necessarily a bad thing? Certainly not. It's just eye-catching and not surprising that that becomes the message today. The the Donald Trump campaign message today was, I got to go open one of my hotels. This is really important to me. Especially at this time in the campaign where normally the candidates are in the battleground states. They're having campaign rallies. They're trying to turn out the vote. I mean, today Donald Trump was in D.C. and his running mate was in Utah. Well, and that says a lot about where the battlegrounds are. (laughs) Yes, apparently there is some necessity for, for Mike Pence, at least, to be in Utah and see what can be done to keep that state in the Trump column. So that was today. Let's move on to some news. Uh, The Washington Post is reporting that Donald Trump and his campaign are slowing down fundraising for the Republican National Committee and don't have a big list of scheduled fundraisers going forward. By comparison, the Clinton campaign has scheduled 41 fundraising events between now and November 3rd, featuring surrogates like Chelsea Clinton and Tim Kaine. Um, Sue, can you explain what's going on here and, and whether this is a big deal. Yeah, it was. it's a little bit overblown, but it is still notable. The Trump campaign's finance chairman, Stephen Mnuchin, gave an interview with The Washington Post in which he was quoted as saying, we've kind of wound down. And this is the fundraising efforts for the Victory Fund, which is that joint fund between the Donald Trump campaign and the RNC. And this pot of money goes not just to help Donald Trump, but the party writ large, down-ballot candidates. It funds a lot. It funds advertising, get out the vote, the people that they pay to get on the ground to get that vote out. Uh, And Donald Trump held his last major fundraiser where he in person appeared October 19th. Now, the RNC made clear today that they have not stopped fundraising, that Reince Priebus, the chairman, is still making calls to donors. Um, Vice presidential nominee Mike Pence is doing a fundraiser tonight for the Victory Fund. It's just that Donald Trump, the principal candidate, has has no more on his schedule. And of course, you know, Hillary Clinton, her held her last fundraiser Tuesday in Miami. So it's not that unusual that the principals are not having these big dollar fundraising uh, events right now. It would just appear that Democrats are having more of these surrogate fundraisers in the closing weeks of the campaign. Also, there's the factor that the Clinton campaign has, generally speaking, raised a great deal more money with the Democratic National Committee for the purpose of get out the vote efforts and this stuff we call boots on the ground or get out the vote or all that sort of thing that I think strikes most voters as, so what, don't voters get themselves to the polls? Well, yes, they do, but an effort to help them can make a difference. And in a close race or in a close state, such as, say, Florida or Ohio, the ability to help people get to the polls by one means or another can make a difference, a one point, a two percentage point difference in the outcome of the race. Both sides obviously concede that. Both sides actually want to have that kind of operation. But it's been a focus for the Clinton people for a very long time, and they have coordinated with the Democratic Party more smoothly and raised more money. I would say, too, there is one very notable thing that's happening on one side that isn't on the other, is that the Democratic Party and its allies, and specifically in this example, I think of a a super PAC associated with the Hillary Clinton campaign, is now taking money raised for Clinton and using that money in down-ballot races, that they are now going on the air on behalf of Democratic Senate candidates. Today, they announced that they're going on the air on behalf of a House Democratic candidate in Iowa. And there is no comparable effort happening on the Republican side. Now, they do have super PACs that are helping Senate races and they're and they've raised a good bit of money and they are in the game. But that the Trump campaign and the Victory Fund and these funds that were initially started to help the top of the ticket have not been sort of spreading those resources around as much as the Democratic side is. Let's talk about those down ballot races since we're there already. 
Sue, how is it looking on the Senate side? Which races are you watching? You know, the race that I think is particularly interesting as we get into these final two weeks is in Missouri where the incumbent Senator Roy Blunt, I think this is maybe one of the most interesting undercovered races of the cycle because we have a a weird dynamic in that it is a state that Donald Trump is very much favored in, will probably carry by five to 10 points if history is any indication. And the Republican incumbent senator there is in huge danger. So we have a scenario in this state where the Republican presidential nominee is running very strong. And so is the Democratic Senate candidate who is a first-time candidate. It's a weird thing. And he's 30 years younger than Roy Blunt. And he's 30 years younger in outlook than Roy Blunt, who has become, uh, over the years, quite a Washington fixture. Uh, He has uh, married a lobbyist. He has become someone who stands with the establishment he did in the House as a member of the leadership. He does now in the Senate as a member of the leadership. And if this is a year of anti-Washington, if this is a year of even anti-incumbency, some of the advantages that most of us assumed would put him over the top in 2016 are actually working against him. And I figure we're probably also watching the race in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, the race in Nevada, for sure. Um, New Hampshire is looking mighty tight. You know, Democrats have had a natural built-in advantage in the 2016 Senate races from the get-go because Republicans are just simply defending more seats. And they've had a built-in advantage where they're heavily favored to win at least two of the four or five seats that they need to win for a takeover. You know, Pennsylvania and New Hampshire are two states where Democrats are heavily favored. But it's not been all bad news for Republicans down the ballot. You know, their Senate candidates have stayed in this fight. And even today, we saw a poll coming out of New Hampshire that shows the race between Kelly Ayotte and Maggie Hassan back to being razor tight again. And I think that the Senate Republicans in these races have run really strong campaigns. And it also shows me that, you know, we've heard this anecdotally a lot from voters, but people are really separating the top and bottom of the ticket this year. And I've heard as recently as this week, even anecdotal things from voters saying, I might leave the top of the ticket blank, but I'm going to show up and vote in the Senate race, which is really interesting. So, you know, Democrats have a natural advantage. Yes, it's not over. And I would also say another interesting race is Indiana, where former Democratic Senator Evan Bayh, uh, was is trying to mount a comeback. He entered the race heavily favored, and Republicans have been able to narrow the margin of this race to within a margin of error. It's an absolute toss-up race and another one that will determine the Senate. Here again, in the case of Indiana, it's, it's not unlike Missouri. It's a case of which one of the candidates seems more like a Washington insider and which one seems like a good old native Hoosier. And in this case, the, the party roles are reversed, and it's Evan Bayh, even though he's been out of office for a number of years. He's the one who seems more Washington than Todd Young, who is the Republican young congressman who um, has been in Washington as a member of Congress, but still seems more like, you know, the Tea Party type back in Indiana. You know, the interesting thing is that this, in theory, was going to be a change election. Yeah. We've had, you know, two terms of a president and somebody is now running for the third term. And so this this was supposed to be a change election. Could end up being that in some of these Senate races and not necessarily on the presidential front. 
Yeah. And it, I think it's going to be hard to draw any grand conclusions about what 2016 meant and what the lessons are, because it's all over the map. I mean, you also look in places like Ohio and Florida, where, you know, it's incredibly competitive at the top of the ticket, but the Republican Senate candidates, they're doing pretty strong. So to say that, you know, it's very possible that if Clinton wins Florida, Senator Marco Rubio could win Florida, too. And and what's the conclusion of that? You know, does anybody walk away with a mandate? What are the voters trying to tell Washington with the election results of this. And I think that that's one of the things we're already starting to see people debate ahead of the election. And that debate is just going to intensify after Election Day. And in other news, let's talk about the latest Clinton campaign emails made public by WikiLeaks. Those emails, again, are hacked from campaign manager John Podesta's personal Gmail account, possibly by Russia, though the FBI is still investigating. And the latest batch is really an inside look at what was going on inside the Clinton campaign. It, was, it wasn't even a campaign yet. It was sort of a shadow campaign when news of her private email server first came to light. And it's not really pretty. Uh, there's one email chain where John Podesta, who is now Clinton's campaign chairman, and Neera Tanden, who's a longtime Clinton ally, complain about the email story coming out so late in the game. Podesta writes that those in Clinton's inner circle, quote, sure weren't forthcoming with the facts here. And then Tandon asks, why didn't they get this stuff out like 18 months ago? So crazy. And then in a later email, she answers her own question saying, quote, they wanted to get away with it. You know, those are good questions. I mean, the questions that are being asked there about uh, why they didn't put it all out right away, why they didn't make a clean breast of it from the beginning are good questions. And they have never been thoroughly answered. And she has paid, that is Hillary Clinton, has paid an enormous price for this because it has lingered and hovered and been a cloud over her campaign ever since March of 2015. And here we are two weeks out and we are still talking about it. In fact, it has become... More than the Clinton Foundation, more than any of her other controversies over the decades, this has become the final focus of the Never Hillary movement. It's also, you know, it's given fire to her opponents who say that the email server was a very big deal and should be an issue that voters care about because her own inner circle is acknowledging that this was a big deal and they handled it poorly. And in an I believe it was an earlier wave of the WikiLeaks releases in which they talked about how a lot of her inner circle wanted her to apologize and wanted her to be more forthcoming and how she, how resistant she was to that as a candidate. And that's been another criticism that she personally did not address this well enough and early enough to not keep it a lingering issue for voters. I would make a distinction, though, between what Podesta and Neerat Handen are objecting to and what Hillary Clinton's real opponents are objecting to. Hillary Clinton's real opponents believe that this is a reason she should go to jail. Yeah. What Podesta and Tandon are objecting to is the public relations problem that going to have <laughs> yeah. as her campaign surrogates and campaign staff down the road explaining what this was all about and preventing people from thinking that it is a reason she should go to jail. Yeah. Those are very different kinds of reactions. Yeah, I mean, none of these emails lead anyone to believe that they think there is a legal problem or anything like that. It's all about PR. The, the public relations headache. And poor decision making. And secrecy on her part, which they think is going to be a problem to deal with. And a an, an unwillingness, once something bad has happened, to simply admit it, say it's a mistake, apologize, and go on. 
So one chain, one email chain that has gotten probably the most attention in the last 24 to 48 hours is one where people on the campaign see an interview that President Obama did with Bill Plant of CBS News. Plant asks President Obama what he knew about the private email server. Mr. President, when did you first learn that Hillary Clinton used an email system outside the U.S. government for uh, official business while she was Secretary of State? At the same time, uh, everybody else learned it through news reports. So that prompted this email chain where... Cheryl Mills, who is a lawyer and a very close aide with Hillary Clinton, writes, quote, we need to clean this up. He has emails from her. They do not say state.gov. So two days after that email exchange on March 9th, White House Press Secretary Josh Earnest goes out into the White House press briefing room and ventures to clean it up. The point that the president was making is not that he didn't know Secretary Clinton's email address. He did. Uh, But... Uh, He was not aware of the details of um, how that email address and that server had been set up uh, or how uh, Secretary Clinton and her team uh, were planning to comply with the Federal Records Act. And at the time, it is entirely possible that he was not really looking at the address. He was merely looking at the message and he was hitting reply. And he was not really thinking about whether or not there might be something in all of this that was going to be a problem. So the Clinton campaign responds to all of this. You know, I called today and I was like, hey, what about all this stuff? And they did what they've done consistently since this story came out, since these emails started dribbling out, which is to say that they will not confirm the authenticity of any of the emails or any of the content that has been released by WikiLeaks. And then they point the finger back at Russia. There is a broader point here, and I think Marco Rubio has made this point, and it's a smart point, where he has warned Republicans to not be so gleeful about the things they find in these WikiLeaks email or seem to be celebrating it too much, because it is the assessment of the U.S. intelligence community that the Russian government has been hacking into both the DNC, the DCCC, possibly these emails, and that his point was, you know, today it's the Democrats, but tomorrow it could be us. And if we are going to be, if we're going to want to be angry about Russian hacks in the future, we shouldn't be too political opportunist about it today. Moving on. Also this week, Hillary Clinton picked up some interesting endorsements. Um, Former Secretary of State Colin Powell, who served under George W. Bush, he says he'll vote for Clinton. And also she got the endorsement of Black Lives Matter activist DeRay McKesson, who wrote in The Washington Post. And I'm just going to read a little bit of it here. I often hear some of my peers say that they may not vote, that a Donald Trump presidency would bring about a productive apocalypse, that the system would grind to a halt and force us to confront everything that is wrong with the system. But we know that the system will not come to a grinding halt. It never has. In a Trump administration, the system would surely grind us, black and brown folks, even more than it already does. Also, um, Another person who endorsed Clinton uh, was Brittany Packnett. Um, She is another Black Lives Matter activist. And both she and McKesson have met with Hillary Clinton numerous times over the course of this campaign, talking about criminal justice, talking about social justice and the Black Lives Matter movement. And only just now, Clinton finally earned their endorsement. Why do you think it's all so late in the game that they're endorsing her? I mean, did they... 
Did the movement, have they had like long protracted conversations with the Clinton campaign? You know, I think that they were deeply conflicted about whether to endorse her. I mean, Hillary Clinton in 1996 used the phrase super predators. Her husband's crime bill was is seen as as contributing greatly to the mass incarceration of African-Americans within the Black Lives Matter movement. Even still, just because DeRay and Brittany came out and endorsed Hillary Clinton, they've gotten some blowback for it Hmm. from within their own movement. And there was a great deal of dissatisfaction throughout the primaries that that neither Clinton nor Sanders really seemed to speak entirely to the sensibilities of uh, either Black Lives Matter or to many other people, organized or not organized, uh, about violence against black young men in particular, about the, the police shootings, about the prevalence of guns in these communities, that no one seemed to really be wrestling with those issues to their satisfaction. So do any of these endorsements matter? 10 million people have already voted. I thought it really mattered when Colin Powell came out for Barack Obama in 2008 because he was so closely associated with the National Security Administration of the Bush administration. He'd been the Secretary of State. He had been the uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You could not be more impeccable in your credentials as a national security person and a Republican than Colin Powell. It's just one of like the many, many wacky things of 2016 that if we would have thought 10 years ago that the broad, broad numbers of George W. Bush's national security team would be rallying around Hillary Clinton for president, we would have laughed you out of the room. Yep. And and Colin Powell is just one more that includes a group of Republican national security advisors, foreign affair advisors that worked under George Bush, who have publicly come out in favor of Hillary Clinton. And it's just it's a really part of the surreal factor of 2016. Yeah, Hillary Clinton would have laughed him out of the room, too. (laughs) To to me, the epitome of them all was not an endorsement for Hillary, but just a rejection of Trump from George Shultz, who was the man who served in many cabinet positions for Ronald Reagan, uh, and certainly the epitome of the notion of the Ronald Reagan peace through strength mentality in the 1980s, saying when asked about a Trump presidency as a prospect, saying, God help us. Okay, and Just one quick fun fact before we go to the break. Today is Hillary Clinton's birthday, and she is 69 years old. And she is a Scorpio. There you go. As am I. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, asking, what if you could help combat global climate change and make money at the same time? Introducing Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects. You can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio. Best of all, Wonder Capital doesn't take any fees for investing your money. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash NPR. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Support for NPR Politics Podcast and the following message come from Wix.com, who believes every great business needs a stunning website. With Wix.com, it's easier than ever to create yours. With all the things you need to look amazing online, images, videos, and professional text. And the best part is, you can do it all on your own. Go to Wix.com. Create your stunning website today. Okay, we're back. And before we get to a letter, we have 
what amounts to an early can't let it go. <laughs> Can we just take a couple of moments to appreciate this moment of levity in the form of an ad for a Texas county commissioner? This is Travis County in central Texas. Gerald Doherty, this ad opens with him and his wife doing dishes in their kitchen. We've got room to put 2,700 people in our jail, and it costs us about $103 a day. Gerald really doesn't have any hobbies. Last year's tax rate was 0.4169. This year, <laughs> so then the ad cuts to him out in so the backyard by the grill. 3838 is probably going to go somewhere between 3838 and 41.69. Most people leave their work at the office. We got three light rail cars. You can and put then uh, they're sitting at the dinner table. It looks like sort of a double date situation. Uh, and and everyone else is just basically tuning him out. There are a million people in this community. I mean, that is 0. .01 to the eighth power. If you round it off, it's zero. All he wants to do is fix things. <laughs> so and then at the end... You know, I think I like helping around the house here. His wife says... Please re-elect Gerald. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty please. It is nice to know that someone is having fun in 2016. Gerald is going to get reelected. <laughs> Do you know that, Ron? Have you have you looked at the specifics of that race? Can I, can I just say, that is the best ad I have seen in many, many years. It is just joyful. And we can't really do it full justice here on the podcast. You okay, really guys, have to see these people. Go look it up on the interwebs. Okay, let's do a tiny bit of listener mail, and we just can't say it enough. Thank you to everyone who writes us and sends us your recordings. And we are sorry that we can't write back to all of them. We're getting a couple of hundred emails a day these days. And, you know, it is super valuable to hear from you and what you're curious about. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And here's a note this week from Alex in Arizona. Would someone else like to read this? I feel like uh, I've heard my own voice too much on this podcast. Ron, you should do it. Okay. Hey, y'all. Tuesday, you were talking about who signs up for early voting and mail-in ballots. I just wanted to share my experience. I'm 23 and work in central Phoenix at an evening shift in one of the area's major hospitals. However, I live several cities away. I don't have time to do much during the day before work, and when it comes time to vote in the general election, I surely do not have time to wait in the line. But for all of Maricopa County, that's Phoenix, the voting locations had been significantly reduced. At my old middle school down the street, people ended up waiting in line for over four hours. Some people didn't get to the booths until after the location was already closed well into the evening. Suffice it to say, I had signed up for a mail-in ballot as soon as possible and cast my vote already last Monday. Keep up the great work. It's fun to hear your discussions while I'm assembling surgical instrument trays. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Stop doing that, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and we should say that... <laughs> oh, Ron. I'm sorry. <clears throat> and we should say that in the primary, there were real issues with extremely long lines. Yes, and that was, of course, blamed on the Clinton campaign by the Sanders campaign and on the Republican Party by the Trump campaign, even though there was no indication that the places where the lines were longest were places where those candidates... We're getting the most votes. It just appeared as though there were just too few and that they were particularly scarce in neighborhoods of lower income, which had been already alleged by a lot of the critics of those cutbacks in Maricopa County and in Arizona generally. It costs money to do these elections. And 
certain kinds of officials do not want to prioritize making it easy to vote because it's too expensive and because, who knows, maybe not the highest priority for them to maximize the number of people voting. I was just say, that's why a lot of people do early voting, too, because if it's faster, it's more convenient. And if you know, you know, a lot of people don't have four hours to go wait in line to vote. They need to be able to go to back to work and get onto their hospital shifts. So it's supposed to be partly for voter convenience. Well, thank you, Alex. And please be careful with those surgical instruments. That is a wrap today. We will be back again on Thursday. Uh, Once again, we're shooting for sometime around 630 Eastern time for these daily episodes to post. So check your feed around then if you want to listen on your evening commute. And as always, keep up with more of our coverage on NPR One and on your local public radio station. P.S. If you've been enjoying the acapella version of our theme song during the breaks, it's from listener Matt Billman in California. You can hear it on his website at matthewbillman.com. Shout out to Matt. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.